This podcast is produced by Whisper and Mutter. Hey, thanks for listening. I am conducting a research project of sorts. I am surveying you, my listeners, to learn more about you. This quick, anonymous survey will help shape the strategy, production, distribution, and sponsorship of the podcast. Can you please visit yizzyresearch.com to take the listener survey? Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Now, on to the show. You're listening to the Yizzy Research Podcast, the podcast for people who research people. You are listening to the voice of your host, Imani, UX researcher at and founder of the UX research company, Yizzy Research. I help organizations understand their users, and I coach aspiring and practicing UX researchers in their career journeys. At the time of this recording, I was recently hired for a contract at a management consultancy. Angelique, a research director, had interviewed me for that contractor role. During the first portion of our conversation today, Angelique talks about what a research director does and how it differs from being a UX research consultant and UX research principal, and how a senior UX research principal matches researchers to the right consulting project, and what happens when the researcher isn't a good fit. I especially recommend this episode if you are an aspiring UX researcher because Angelique shares some hiring advice in the second portion of the chat. It's also an important episode for UX researchers looking to grow and scale their UX research teams. You are currently a research director at Ken and Carta, but you've spent a lot of time at Ken and Carta as a UX research consultant, then a UX research principal, and now a director. So first, can you start by telling us what you do as a research director And then secondly, tell us what's the difference between these three in terms of responsibilities. Sure, yeah. So as a research director, pretty much oversee the research function at Kenan Carta, um, specifically for Chicago. Um, So really, my goal as a director is to make sure that, A, we have a, I guess, a viable practice, a a viable skill set that, you know, our clients are actually going to want to purchase. Because obviously, if there's no research work, Um, There's no researchers, right? Um, But there's a lot more that goes into, you know, cultivating a research practice. You also need to find talent um, like yourself that makes a great, you know, fit for the team um, that can find a mutual beneficial relationship. Um, So a lot of just human factors in the building, you know, a strong team that can deliver for a client. Um, So a lot of the director work is really that balance between like client satisfaction, employee satisfaction, of course, business satisfaction. So that's really, I think, the biggest hat I wear as a director. And how is being a director different from being a research consultant and a research principal? As a consultant, really, it wouldn't be unheard of for like 100% of your focus to be on your client project. I mean, at that point, you've developed your research skill set, or you might have a cross-practice skill set, and really your job is to show up with your kind of briefcase of skills, listen to the problems to be solved on the client side, and to deliver. Um, As a principal, the expectation is, you know, at this point, you've become a subject matter expert. Um, We like to use the phrase, like, multiply others. At that senior level, your goal is really to, like, enrich the practice um, to help other researchers, you know, grow up in the firm and to help be mentors. Um, So yeah, I've kind of walked through all of those shoes. And sometimes I'm still a consultant, sometimes I'm still a principal, depending on the day. Um, But most of the time I'm living the research director life. 
Yeah, I think it's really cool that you started off as a research, as a UX research consultant, then a principal, and now a director at the same company. Because now, since a lot of your job consists of um, hiring new researchers, you know what to look for because you've been at every level. So I think that's really important too. You probably have such a, you have a really um, a robust perspective as to what the company needs and also what the client needs and also what the actual research team needs as well. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's been nice to see that. I mean, I think uh, the thing that you kind of lose is obviously I've been at one company. So um, I like to say I don't want to hire a bunch of like Angeliques (laughs) into the firm. Like there's always value in someone coming from somewhere else to say like, this is how it was there. Um, Does this help shape, you know, what Kin and Carta does? Um, So I think it's great that I've grown up, you know, Kin and Carta. but also the value of coming from the outside is definitely important. And I do want to talk a little bit more about Kit and Carta. Can you tell people what Kit and Carta does if they're not familiar? Interesting enough, uh, I say I've been at Kit and Carta for eight and a half years, but we were named Solstice Mobile back when I started in 2012. We were pretty much, you know, a dev shop back in 2012. Every company needed a, a mobile website or a mobile app. Um, so we had a bunch of engineers that could build that, which is great. Um, so we started to build up our UX practice to really think about, you know, what are the affordances of mobile? What makes this unique? How do we design for mobile? Um, what do people expect for their experience? So I like to say we evolved from a dev shop into really kind of a user experience uh, driven development firm, um, which is really cool. Um we were acquired by um, St. Ives at the time, um, so a UK-based company. Um, and what was really nice is that we then got a bunch of sister companies um, that were also in the UX space, but they also did marketing. Um, so we ultimately build up with Kin and Carta as like a global end-to-end company that can help you with, uh, you know, consulting, consultant management. Um, We can help you with your hiring processes. We can help you build a digital product. We could help you with marketing. Um, And with the acquisition of Cascade Data Labs, we also now have a data function to really help our clients with, you know, data enablement and platform building. So really, there's not much that, you know, Kid and Carta doesn't do. (laughs) But I will say we are prominently focused in the digital space. And a huge part of your role as a research director at Kid and Carta is casting. Can you explain what casting is? Uh, yes, it's our fancy term for resourcing. Sounds a lot better and I guess a lot funner. It's actually kind of appropriate, right? It's the marriage of somebody's skill set, where they are today, where they'd like to go, uh, understanding what the client needs. So I mean, there's obviously the problem to solve. They want us to build X, Y, Z. But also, like, what is their maturity in UX? How ambiguous is this problem? Has this person, you know, dealt with that level of ambiguity? Would they be good at it? Would they be interested? Um, So, again, it's that marriage that, you know, I talked about as the UX director really comes into play for casting. We are really, you know, making sure that a part on a project is a good fit for the client and a good fit for the employee. Um, So it's actually one of my favorite parts of my job, actually, because I know that's where the employee spends, you know, maybe up to 40 hours of their week. So it's important that that is like a good fit and a good connection. So 
I like being that kind of matchmaker. Yeah, I was about to say you're like a corporate matchmaker. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, so in a huge, so what ultimately, ultimately what casting is, is connecting um, your researchers to the right project that fits them best. How do you ensure that the right researcher is matched to the right client project? Yeah, what's interesting is that, you know, getting 100% fit is I'd say nearly impossible, right? There's so much that's revealed in those first few weeks of a project. So what we really try to do is just hire people that are naturally curious, that like want to problem solve so that you know that putting them on that project, they're going to go in and they're going to listen and also do some self-evaluation as well to be like, you know, is this kind of a good fit or like how to apply what I know? Um, your team is cross-functional. So it's not just that researcher, but, you know, how do you look at the other people on the team and how do they lean into support or be supported? So again, not 100% fit all the time, but you try to bring in the right person that you think will at least be able to kind of self-navigate that um, with, you know, within themselves or within the team. Uh, and we also have, you know, the other part of casting is succession. So also understanding, you know, if it's not a fit, how do we, you know, learn from that to find like a better fit next time? And what is the succession process like, right? Let's say if someone comes to you at Kid and Carta, a researcher says, hey, Angelique, I was assigned to client X, but it's just not working out. How does, like, what are the next steps from your perspective as a director? We definitely have to like understand, you know, a lot of it is collecting that feedback proactively as well. So um, trying to take a pulse of like, hey, what, how are you feeling on this project? How, you know, is it helping? you know, is it challenging you too? Because you also don't want people to be bored (laughs) on their project. Um, But, you know, if it's not the right fit, we also have to think about um, what would a move mean for the team and the project, Um, figure out timing. Obviously, projects have milestones. Um, So again, it's kind of marrying the, the people on the client side, the team, and the employee to like a, a plan for succession and obviously finding a fit where that person could go. How do you embed UX researchers into a consulting client-based model like Kid and Carta has, right? Like usually a lot of researchers that are listening to this, a lot of UX researchers either work for themselves or they work um, directly with one company. So how do you actually embed researchers into that consulting model? And interesting enough, I think that's really evolved. And I think it's come from also just like scaling our research team But early on as the only researcher, I was more like research as a service. Um, And I think a lot of people are used to this model where it was like a a project needs a researcher for a couple days or a week, and I would jump onto that project. What we've really tried to evolve to is like allowing our researchers to be embedded on our agile teams, like 100% to be fully focused on a team. Um, And the value there has really been, well, A, you get to learn about scrum ceremonies, (laughs) which is, which is, you know, fun and interesting, but you get to connect cross practice with the engineers, you know, to understand how your insights impact their world, or the designers or the product folks. Um, It also requires you to not just think about, you know, a big one and done research plan, but like, how might you iteratively learn about, you know, the features that are being developed now or potential features in the future. Um, So setting up, you know, an iterative cadence with users, which I think can be different than a lot of people are used to operating, where you're kind of like, you get your research assignment, there's a start and end date. Um, 
for completion, and then you hand that over the fence. So one of the things people have really enjoyed, I think, about working at Kin and Carta is like being part of that delivery, and even sometimes in production, being able to pull, see the analytics. What are people actually doing um, once they have access to whatever you've created? Um, but it can be a challenge, I think, for some folks to come in. They're used to kind of being the lone wolf researcher that goes and you know, does their study and comes back. I can definitely see how that can be a struggle for people. And speaking of researchers at Kid and Carta, so when you first started at Kid and Carta, how many UX researchers were there originally? There were zero. There was not even, we didn't even have a, a UX practice at that point. We had um, two visual designers. Um, I came in technically as the first quote unquote UX person. Um, and the three of us, you know, as we mentioned, you know, Solstice being a dev shop, we're like, you know, we think that we can do more of the design work that our clients are looking for and we can enable uh, a research function. And so the three of us kind of kicked off what was the UX practice. Um, and then about three years ago, we had gotten to a scale where we wanted to think about research as its own specialty. And we wanted to be able to hire in people that, you know, were just interested in research and maybe they didn't have, you know, design experience. And that was a-okay with us. <laughs> we didn't want to force people to make wireframes if they weren't, you know, into that visual aspect of UX. Um, and so we created the UXR discipline separate from UX design. If you're enjoying this podcast, go to Apple Podcasts and give it a five-star rating and a glowing review. Subscribe, follow. Many of you messaged me to tell me how much you like the podcast, but it's even better if you share it with your coworkers, mentees, and mentors on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and any other platform I forgot to mention. Spread the love. Don't keep me to yourself. <laughs> also, if you are an aspiring or even a current UX researcher who needs help with your resume, interviewing skills, professional branding, cover letter, LinkedIn profile, and portfolio, consider applying for the Yizzy Research Coaching Program. In the second and final portion of our chat, Angelique talks about how to scale a UX research team or department, why academics struggle in industry as UX researchers, tips for aspiring UX researchers trying to get their first role, advice for UX leaders scaling and growing a team of UX researchers, how to maintain morale for a growing research team, what makes a UX research job applicant stand out, and red flags in a UX research job application. And how many UX researchers does Ken and Carter have now? Like, do you have an estimate off the top of your head? Do we have uh, 24 as of this morning? I was actually talking to someone um, a few weeks ago when I first started contracting with Ken and Carta, who referred to you as the godmother of UX research at Ken and Carta, <laughs> because you scaled um, their research practice from zero to 24 as of today, right? And my next question is, how do you scale a research practice? I think a lot of people are always interested in growing UX research at their respective companies, whether it's a consultancy or not, but they don't know where to start, right? Like, um, where do you start with that? Exactly. I'm glad they didn't call me the grandmother because I that time and I was like, well, no, God, I'll take godmother. Um, so obviously, as you know, the first researcher, and I know a lot of people are in that position, it's really in a showing the value of of the work. So it's not just doing it, but like being able to pinpoint like what changes were made based on like the insight that you brought. 
Um, I pretty much just got to a point where, you know, I was across six projects and I think the quote was, we need another Angelique because <laughs> there's actually demand. So the first, you know, task is to actually create the demand for the work. Um, once you start, you know, you'll, you know, hiring is a big part of it. Um, you might, you know, make some errors sometimes in hiring as you're trying to calibrate, like, what is the mutual fit? Is there a, you know, a profile of the perfect Kinnan Carter researcher? The answer is no, but you do start to understand, like, who is drawn to this type of work. Um, and then really it's defining, you know, what does UX research look like at Kinnan Carter? What do we call our methods? What are the ones that we lean on the most? The most? What do we do? What do we not do? Um, then scaling. Um, do you, you know, you could hire a bunch of senior folks, but then you're not really creating entry level opportunities. You could have a bunch of entry level folks, but then you're not creating the support system. So really trying to balance um, how you're going to scale meaningfully and make sure everyone feels supported. And then mature. Um, so obviously I came in with my lens and my experience of UX research, but Again, if I would have hired a bunch of Angeliques, we would only be as good as my experience. Um, so in maturing, it's pulling in people that are going to kind of kick out the boundaries of what our research looks like and help us get to the next level. Or collectively, you know, we're always pushing to do more quant, for example. Collectively, how do we all grow in a certain area? What do we want the you know next stage of our research practice to look like? So I'd say it's a lot of defining scaling and maturing and in in developing ken and carter's research practice from nothing to now 24 researchers are the types of researchers that you've hired initially different than the ux researchers you hire now in the present so for example do um, researchers that were hired earlier on do they have did they have more experience did they have a high level of education did they have a certain proficiency in different methods? Like, what's the difference between those earlier researchers at Kinnicarta and the more recent UX researchers? One of the things that we did notice is that uh, potentially folks coming straight out of academia, um, or maybe we're doing more academic type research, sometimes struggle in like what we would call like applied research or like consultancy. Um, there is this aspect of client maturity in terms of UX that requires us to meet our clients where they are. So sometimes, you know, they'll be fully on board with UX research <laughs> from the get-go and you just jump in. Other times, you know, there is an educational aspect. There is some persuasion that needs to be done. And some people are just prepared to like come in and just do the research. You know, I'm here, <laughs> let's research. Um, and so sometimes I think it, it was a struggle for some folks that were just like, I know the exact best practices of how to do everything, um, but or necessarily as flexible. And I don't know if that was just early on or just in general, as we tried to hire different folks, you know, even, you know, more recently, just identifying that, like, maybe that wasn't going to be as much of a fit. Um, but you do want to bring in folks that do have, you know, at least a strong education as well, because you can get lost, I think, in consultancy and kind of smooth your edges a bit and maybe fold your cards a little too soon. Um, and folks coming, you know, from education are able to basically say, hey, that's not the best practice. And remember data integrity and 
So it is refreshing, but I think if some people are too focused on academia, it can be can be tough. That makes sense. Yeah, because like you said, people who are doctoral researchers, like uh, PhD grads, they're really focused on knowledge for the sake of knowledge, right? And so coming into like a corporate or consulting environment where research is not always, it's not knowledge for the sake of knowledge, right? Like you said, it's very applied. I can see how that can be a, a tricky transition for them. And and this next question is more so about your general thoughts on the UX research job market, not at Kinnikarta specifically. Um, I've noticed, as a lot of researchers have, that there are a lack of entry-level UX researcher roles, whether they're associate level or junior level or even internships. What do you think about that lack of entry-level um, entry opportunity for aspiring UX researchers? Yeah, it can be extremely tough. I think I have multiple LinkedIn conversations going on right now with folks really trying to coach them into like getting the, the first job, right? Like people are looking for experience, but like chicken and egg, right? To, to get the experience, you need to have the job to do it. Um, I think what's kind of unique about UX in some ways is like there are problems to be solved kind of all around us um, in different areas, uh, especially if you can find one you're passionate in. Um, when I'm looking at a, at a portfolio, I'm not necessarily seeing if it's you know, tied to a, a client or I might see like, is this something they did like as part of a class? But like, if you can talk about maybe some self-initiated research that you have done and just show your process, I think that can go a long way at least for those that aren't, you know, getting too stuck on like resumes or names or places that you've worked before. Um, but yeah, I wish there was a good answer. I know we also do internships, which I think is a great way for companies to get talent in the door and at least get them comfortable and confident and get them something on their resume. Um, but I don't, yeah, I don't know how many companies are, are doing that consistently, but I have seen it be an issue. Yeah, it is. And it's kind of, it's a big question I always ask researchers that have been in the field for a while, right? I'm always curious about your thoughts. Like you said, there's not really a, a clean answer to that. Um, but I do like the advice that you gave to aspiring UX researchers about just getting some kind of experience, even if it's a part of a class, doing some self-initiated UX research work, just something to build up your portfolio. I think that's a great a starting point. I mean, curiosity is like half of what we do, right? Uh, I saw yeah, Twitter posts or something about confusion is like the start to great research, um, being just naturally confused or curious about something and like how you take it from A to Z. Like that's the story I'm looking for when I'm hiring. And then in terms, so you've, again, you've scaled Ken and Carter's UX practice, UX research practice from zero to 24 researchers. And doing all of that, you've obviously learned a lot. If you had to do it again and you had to scale another UX research team from zero to 24, what would you do differently? I think, uh, I mean, even some of the hires that we mentioned that maybe didn't work out as well. Like, I feel like all that was like a necessary process. Like, there wouldn't be a way to like get around some of the learning moments. They help build a foundation. I think what was really tough is I obviously myself came from a individual contributor to director, um, I think relatively quickly um, in this space. And I really, I think beat myself up quite a bit, right? Like uh, 
if you know, someone was having a hard time on their project, a uh, researcher wasn't really um, enjoying the work that they were doing, I took that all very personally. Because um, I felt like, uh, you did me a favor, you came for <laughs> part of my research practice. So like, I am in charge of your happiness. Uh, and then one of my researchers told me that everyone is in charge of their own fun, which I, I took to heart, kind of like, everyone's kind of responsible for in their own career journey. And I'm like, here to help. But like, really, all I've done is create an opportunity. And it's, you know, up to someone to kind of pick it up from there. Um, but I did, yeah, I had a lot of years of just kind of beating myself up at every kind of turn. Um, so I think I'd give myself a little bit of a break <laughs> if I had to do it all again, uh, not be such a, a, I guess, a reluctant leader. And how do you keep the how do you keep the morale high for a team of twenty four researchers? We started off like small and mighty, right? So I think as a practice, um, a formal practice, we were at like four researchers. What I think that allowed us to do is kind of be like the the odd group out, <laughs> like we are like our own little like gang of pirates. Um, so we we branded ourselves. Um, we were the research action team. So we give ourselves the rat brands. Um, we were just very honest, had very honest conversations about what was working well with research, what were some of the frustrations, let everyone kind of have a voice. And then we, you know, basically actioned around the things that we thought could go better. Uh, we created a basically research advocacy series, and basically you know, came out and said, hey, we're UX research here's how it works in the world. Here's the value that we bring. Here's how we could all do better and use this opportunities to like educate the firm. Um, and I don't know if you'd notice this, but like even still at 24, like our Friday meetings are very kind of close knit. Um, and we try to make a really just safe space where people not feel like everything is supposed to be or has to be perfect all the time. And that we all are kind of empowered to, to have a voice and also help change things. It doesn't have to be how it was yesterday. Um, so for the most part, I think keeping that open dialogue has really helped uh, with our morale. And so just taking a step back, so you mentioned earlier that a large part of your job is casting and also hiring researchers as well. I know you, I interviewed with you as well. So when hiring UX researchers, what makes an applicant stand out? Yeah, I touched on this a little bit, but the basically it's the, the thought process they take um, through a like natural curiosity, I guess, about the problem at hand. Um, understanding, you know, what data exists potentially, or, you know, what really getting to the root of what the problem to solve is and thinking through, you know, showing that they understand the method that's going to help them get there. Um, I know we all love doing in-depth interviews and, field studies, but also understanding when, you know, maybe those methods aren't the best and there's something else to leverage. Um, but I think that can also come with experience. So I think even, at, you know, an analyst or early level, just showing that you are naturally passionate about creating great experiences and inquisitive about, you know, how you might explore doing that. Um, that just comes through an interview, that energy. Um, if you're just there to get a job like that, that shows too. <laughs> you might have done a thousand and one interviews in the in the past quarter if you're not really passionate about what you do um, or naturally curious. 
when you're talking to UX research um, applicants, what are some red flags that you notice that make you say, okay, no? I know you mentioned like a lack of passion for research. Are there any other red flags, whether it's in the interview, on the resume, in the portfolio that make you say, hmm, maybe no? I've actually had um, some individuals not really talk about connecting with users at all or utilizing user data. Um, and I think some people just see the UX aspect of it. And so, you know, they've done some design work or wireframing and um, so they applied for the job, but really it's a red flag. If I can't see the connection that you've made with actual user data um, and how you've kind of gleaned insight from that. So at least have some connection with the end user, <laughs> which shouldn't have to be said, but. Okay. And the final question here. So we've been talking about aspiring UX researchers. What advice do you have for them? Um, I think right now what I'm really interested in as a UX researcher, you know, I've been very focused on kind of the qualitative side of house. Um, I think what's, you know, really starting to happen now is, you know, companies are leveraging, you know, analytics and other sources of data. So I think as a researcher, this is something I'm doing, and I think it'd be great for other researchers to think about really what those other types of data streams are and how do you really triangulate uh, more standard UXR methods with these other types of data. Because I think our value is really going to mature in how we curate that data collectively and like help our clients or our companies um, connect to you know the metrics that they're trying to reach. Um, and along with data comes, you know, obviously ethics, um, like calling it humane insights, right? Like how are we, you know, ethically and inclusively connecting with the individuals we're designing for, um, representing them well, um, and also communicating insights and making recommendations that are good for people. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to take the listener survey on yesyresearch.com. Give this podcast a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow Yuzi Research on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll chat soon.